Are we certain that we aren't in a situation now where the externalities are not being fully borne, but in this case by the regulator, right, that an overly rigid, overly oppressive regulatory system is working some of the ills that we have been discussing, a lack of efficiency. And when we talk about this, in this case, lack of efficiency means money isn't getting where it should be getting, reduced economic activity, reduced investment gains, whatever, competitive harm. So people not being able to compete in the market and customers in that market not enjoying the full benefits of a, as competitive a market as would be potentially available because the regulator's incentives are. And, you know, let's talk about the regulator's incentives, right? If something goes bad, the regulator gets yelled at. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. At any given time in an economy, you generally have two groups of people, some who have extra money and want to find a way to put it to use, and others who have ideas for how to use that money. The various products, services, and institutions that work to connect those two groups of people are generally known as capital markets, and they're a vital part of making the economy work, from providing vehicles for retirement savings to funding new businesses just starting up or helping existing firms expand. With all that money flowing back and forth, of course, comes risk. And today we wrap up our three-part series on resiliency by talking about ways to ensure that U.S. capital markets are resilient to the normal ups and downs of economic activity. Joining me again as special co-host is Brian Knight, Mercatus Scholar and financial regulations expert. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks, Chad. You're almost done with having to deal with me. <laughs> almost. One, one last mission. Just, then we, just then you can one retire. more. Getting too old. Our first guest today is Georgetown University law professor Urshka Velikonia. Urshka has written extensively on securities regulation and enforcement, both for academic journals and major media outlets. Thanks for coming in, Urshka. Happy to be here today. Look forward to our conversation. We're also joined by Andy Vollmer, University of Virginia law professor and director of the John W. Glenn Jr. Law and Business Program. Andy has worked as a partner in a securities litigation and enforcement practice group and has served as deputy general counsel at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Welcome aboard, Andy. Glad to be here. For our first two episodes in this series, I think resiliency as a term was a little more obvious for our audience because a lot of folks associate the financial crisis with banking and housing. So we sort of know what it looks like when those markets aren't resilient. Capital markets might be a little less intuitive, though. So I want to start basic and just ask from your perspectives, what do resilient capital markets even look like? Well, as I've thought about uh, your questions about resilience, I thought we could consider that in the capital market securities regulation area from a slightly different point of view and for a change. Think about it from the perspective of the regulated party rather than the system as a whole. And the question of resilience is, does the system accommodate differences among the regulated persons? You know, is there flexibility, tolerance, adaptability? Does it allow regulated persons to achieve compliance in a way designed for that particular person to be efficient? Or is the system rigid? And another expression for a rigid or a less flexible system would be a command and control system. And as we think about the securities markets, we could think about many different kinds of regulatory systems. And that has an age-old question about principles-based regulation versus rule-based regulation. Principles state a general standard, must be satisfied, but leaves the particularized methods to the regulated person. Rules are more detailed. They're more prescriptive. Every person has to comply with the same thing. So that, as I say, is an age-old question for regulatory systems. I'd like to hear some other views about their thoughts on securities markets, securities regulation, and principles-based versus rules-based. 
So I have a question for you how that would work. But you, you started your, your, your response to this from a sort of a bottom-up approach. I want to approach it from the top down, right? When is a capital market system resilient? A capital market system is not that different from banking, is designed to transmit money from people who have it to and entrepreneurs who have the ideas and have of, of how to put that money to good use. So what we want capital markets to do over time is to be able to value accurately those investments so that they're not prone to, prone to bubbles as well as not prone to busts. I mean, there's going to be bubbles, there's going to busts, but what a resilient market might, might do and what we would hope to do is to be able to get out of its funk relatively quickly, to correct for these mistakes. When will a market do that? Well, you need a lot of liquidity, right? You need well-funded market intermediaries that are able to provide the liquidity to get low prices out of that low price sticking point because you need transactions in order to push the price up, as well as some players on the top when the market is in a frothy area to take short positions, right, to bring the market down. So that's how I'm sort of looking at it. How do we make markets work? And in that universe, rules in the regulatory system plays a supporting role to what people with money out there are doing. So I'll ask a question to Andy here. So what then would standards, the moving to a standards-based system, do to facilitate liquidity and facilitate ac accurate pricing of, of capital markets investments? So I agree on objectives. And the question is, how do we design a regulatory system to help achieve those objectives. And I'm going to accept the current system as it is rather than think about a more idealized system. And the current system is heavily prescriptive. There is a combination of general principles, but there are many, many regulations in the securities world that are quite detailed, quite specific. Generally speaking, people think there are advantages to principles-based regulation, that it's more efficient. So in terms of Erska's question, it would be we should try to define objectives of the regulatory system, and then we have to think about more detailed regulatory implementation methods. And I think a lot of people would say we'd like principles because – that allows each individual person who needs to comply with the system, whether it's a disclosure obligation or in our system, we have many, many market participants who are heavily regulated and often that's where you see a combination of general principles and detailed rules. We'd like each of them to have the flexibility and, and adaptability for their own particular business. Do we? Oh, so that's let, me, let me ask you why. So, so, yeah. so here's why. Why would we, do we really want people to essentially write the rules for themselves? Right. One thing that we want a market to do is to price accurately. The system of mandatory disclosure. Let me start with that one. Right. All public companies are required to report uh, and audit their financials once a year, report quarterly earnings, and so on and so forth. There's detailed rules, and that's that's exactly as Andy described them on what has to be reported and the format in which it has to be reported. And the goal of that system is so that investors can actually compare investments across firms and have some benchmarks for that. 
if and when firms are des- are allowed to come up with their own reporting systems, I'll think back to to Groupon that had back in 2010, 2011, a way to value their earnings and revenues that was completely arbitrary and made them look better than they would otherwise look. And as a result of the going public process, the SEC pushed back. They had to correct those disclosures to make them more, to bring them down to earth and actually make them comparable to companies like Groupon to allow for more accurate pricing. So that's why I want to, uh, that's why I interpreted. I think by and large, people do accept that principles-based regulation is a more efficient way of achieving regulatory goals. But I think we need to maybe go a couple layers deeper because if we want to talk about the disclosure system, the question about the the level of detail of disclosure obligations versus general principles, you can't deal at a, gen, a very high general level. So of, of course you want comparability. That's one of the objectives of a mandatory disclosure system. Um, ultimately, the Goal is price discovery and uh, liquidity, uh, anti-fraud. So those are certainly some of the objectives. But there are, uh, without trying to defend a principles-based system, because in the end, I in fact object to a principles-based system, but I do think by and large they're accepted as a better way to get at things because you allow individuals to make decisions within certain boundaries, which are important for the law to set up. But the difficulty with detailed rule systems, especially on disclosure, is that you develop a rigid system that does not accommodate differences from regulated person to regulated person. And you've taken the choice away from many, many individuals and given the choice about what information must be disclosed to a centralized government agency might have some expertise in some things, but in fact, in our system, the SEC does not have a great deal of expertise in what information is important to investors for particular companies or particular industry segments. So I think you have to be very leery about that is truly a command and control system. So if I could just hop in here for a second, because I, I want to sort of spin this question a little or spin this line of inquiry a little bit differently, because I mean, I think both of your points are well taken, but a recurring theme in the regulation in the regulation trilogy is like how confident you are in the regulator to get it right dictates which path you go down. You know, if if you we talked about this in banking, where whether or not you like like flexible capital standards, largely comes down to how good do you think the Fed is at setting targets. If you think they're good, flexible capital standards are great. If you think they're bad, they're they're not so good. So. You know, I, I, this this does prompt the question of like, how good is the SEC at figuring out what disclosure is really valuable and important for any given firm or or for the market as a whole, right? Because you know, you you may be willing to accept some inefficiencies at the margins if it if it's generally better for the market as a whole. So I say they're not very good, and I say that the system has developed. So that we ha- so let's stay on disclosure. Although I don't want us to forget the other area of regulation I mentioned, which is there is extensive and detailed regulation of many many market participants. What do I mean by that? Broker dealers are a leading example. Investment advisors, transfer agents. There are many many 
people who participate in the markets as professionals who are highly regulated by the SEC. But let's stay on disclosure uh, f- for a moment. And I think that one can raise important questions about the SEC's ability to define the kind of information that specific companies or industry segments ought to be disclosing. There's probably not much dispute at a higher level of generality. You can identify broad areas of concern to investors. We're trying to help them make investment decisions, and we're trying to do better, keep in mind, love to hear Urshka on this, we're trying to do better than a voluntary disclosure system. I think the premise, I know the premise of our current system is that voluntary disclosures are suboptimal. Therefore, we have to come in with a mandatory disclosure system. And there are a a variety of external uh, additional benefits that come from a mandatory disclosure system. But as you go deeper and deeper into the mandatory disclosure items, which are captured in a thing called Regulation SK, you would be appalled at the specificity, the particularity that the SEC has used in the mandatory disclosure system. I'm suggesting that has become too difficult to deal with, too extensive, too burdensome. And I don't think the SEC brings the necessary level of expertise at that level of detail. They do at higher levels of generality. Yeah, I'm I'm not necessarily in disagreement with that observation, that here's the challenge with having detailed rules is that it's once you've decided on a set of rules, it becomes sort of a question of do we change that rule and now results in 2015 are no longer comparable with results in 2014 and 2013 because we've now changed the disclosure requirement. There's a cost to changing the rule going forward, uh, at least in the short term, right? Once you have a few a few quarters, a few years, and you can have some comparables, the new reported numbers become a little bit more meaningful. But I'm, I'm, I'm to a large degree in agreement with Andy. I would push back on the level of expertise at the SEC, right? One of the questions that jumps around uh, in this field, in banking likewise, is the question of the revolving door. Is that bad? Is that good? Everyone has a lot to say, particularly the politicians. But with a revolving door, it's truly a revolving Revolving door, right? People go into the agency, bring private sector expertise, like Andy, then leave the agency, bringing the government expertise as well. Some of them go back to the private sector. Some go into academia, like 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 Andy. So I would suggest that perhaps the concern is somewhat overblown. Even though I think I, I'm ultimately in agreement that there are certainly going to be rules that are you know, on the margin problematic. But let me let me sort of li- go down another line of, of inquiry. So I want to I hear Andy's thoughts on this. This past December, I was teaching at a European law school, and I was teaching about insider trading law and cryptocurrencies specifically. So the question was, how do we regulate this new thing, cryptocurrencies? Um, and how did the US go about it? Well, you have the SEC, they look at the statute, the statute defines a security very broadly. Then they look at the Howey test, a Supreme Court decision. Um, and that's a that's generally just like a framework for determining what is Precisely. A what is a security? Does this new thing, the cryptocurrency, is it a security? The Howey test is a bit of like a standard, right? It's a four-part test. Does the particular item being used satisfy that test? And that allowed the, the commission at a very high level to, to look at it and decide, 
we think cryptocurrencies are a security. Therefore, we're going to make an announcement to the world. These are securities. We're going to start enforcing. And then after a couple of months, they start enforcing and they go after intermediaries and so forth, right? I taught this in Europe. The regulations that regulate securities, it's a 60-part definition of what's a security and, of course, does not include cryptocurrencies. So I would suggest that our securities regulation, despite having lots of detailed rules, in certain areas is actually already quite flexible and standard-based. And the flip side of standards is it also gives the regulator more discretion to enforce to a considerable degree. I, I want to add on something to that because uh, I think we're going this direction anyway. But sort of I asked already kind of what does a resilient capital market system look like? I want to tag on to whatever response you, you've got coming, Andy, and then also hear, hear Brian and Erschke's thoughts. Does the U.S. have a resilient capital market system? If not, where is there room for improvement? If so, and maybe this is part of the answer you just gave, Erschke, what makes it resilient? Well, I'd like to save that maybe for our closing segment. Uh, anything that keeps people listening to the podcast through <laughs> to the end. So <laughs> that's, that's fine with me. Uh, and if we wait long enough, maybe we can avoid the question. <laughs> so the definition of a security is a tricky question, I think. The Howey test has been used successfully for 50 years uh, or more. It is a, gen a set of general standards. It's got some factors to, to look at, or it's actually a four-part test. Which I imagine standards you're thinking of likewise would have to give some meat to the bones. A general, typically, a, a, a principles-based approach has to have a starting point, right. has to have the definition of some sort of objective for the regulated person. I think the Howey test has stood the test of time reasonably well. I don't think it's great with cryptocurrencies. So I think it tends to be mechanically applied to cryptocurrencies and that the way courts have used it by and large has worked pretty well, even though mechanical. But I don't think that it's the ultimate way to determine the how to capture instruments to be regulated the way the federal securities laws regulate. I think so, and I think cryptocurrencies are at least one good example, in, uh, and I don't pretend to be an expert about cryptocurrencies, uh, at least- Everyone they, else does. I was going to say, you're the only person who does <laughs> it. Well, maybe Erska is. I but, but my reaction is that trying to apply the federal securities laws to cryptocurrencies is not the right outcome. That's not- the set of concerns which Erska identified at the very beginning, which I agree with to a very large extent, is not our set of concerns with cryptocurrencies. So we want to force cryptocurrencies into some existing regulatory body and system, and securities looks good. Uh, it's one alternative, but I think ultimately Howie's failed us on that. I don't think the SEC's analysis is particularly persuasive, but it, it's not wholly unreasonable either. It is an example of general principles uh, being applied, but the difficulty ultimately with general principles is what Erska hinted at, and that is in the end, when you have principles-based regulation combined with an aggressive adversarial enforcement mechanism – Principles-based regulation boomerangs. It backfires and it hurts regulated parties. 
It causes unfairness. And that's essentially for this reason. The whole point of a principles-based rule, and by the way, there are many of them, Less uh, there are some in the disclosure area, but quite often you'll see for regulated persons, that is persons who must register like broker-dealers, they'll have a variety of requirements that tell them that they have to develop a compliance program or policies and procedures that are reasonably designed tailored to their individual business to prevent and detect certain kinds of problems. For example, insider trading. That's a classic example. It's in the statutes. The difficulty is a person, like a broker-dealer, will develop a compliance program in good faith, try to tailor it to their individual business. This is the efficiency part of what I've been talking about. That all is like a good thing. Implemented in good faith, and then what happens? A problem occurs. The next thing that happens is the SEC comes in to investigate and they sue. Their position is the compliance system was never reasonable. Because how, it failed. Right? How could it be? It just failed. Every fail safe system is unreasonable after Precisely. the problem, right? So rather than having the agency engage in a good faith evaluation of whether the compliance system was reasonably designed for that person's business to address particularized risks, they conclude and they ha uh, have the ability to conclude that you failed to meet the general principle. And the general principle, therefore, gives the regulator enormous discretion to conclude that the regulated person's have not met the standard because it's not particularized and detailed. Now, there are a bunch of harms that follow from that. I think you lose efficiency, but the, the other – and I think you cause unfairness in the system. But the other thing it does is it drives the regulated industry to demand more specificity. Precisely. And that also tends to cut, tends to limit access to that particular market. So it often ends up working anti-competitive, which is why you have some broker dealers growing really large, other broker dealers uh, shrinking to size or being pushed out of the market, right? You, we see this in banking. We see this among investment advisors. So, so that I'm in agreement with Andy. What I would suggest though is that relying on market players to design an efficient optimal system also risks imposing externalities on negative externalities on on the system when the players don't necessarily bear all of the cost and when the system is not that different from say banking regulation right so think of another example outside of so let's say broker dealer puts in place a compliance system they think it's going to work it ends up failing the question exposed is was the system designed poorly from the from the start or was it designed well and the agency is being overly aggressive in pursuing this case? But we look from, you know, if you look at other types of industries, not just capital markets, again and again, you see examples of businesses that essentially self-regulate to the point it doesn't end up being sufficient, right? The most, the, the recent one that we're all scratching our heads is, is Boeing and the, the 737 MAX. Essentially, that was a self-certified plane from what we're hearing in news now. Boeing had every incentive to do it right. 
But there was a push from the market to keep the cost low, fix, make the retraining very quick, and it resulted in the mess where we are now. So that would be my concern with shifting the decision to just the regulated parties without any intervention from, from the SEC, without any way to push back and assess the quality of that. Before the fact or after the fact, we risk bringing the whole system down to a much lower level of compliance, reducing the efficiencies you're talking about. To, to push back a little mm-hmm. bit on that, I guess. Are we certain that we aren't in a situation now where the externalities are not being fully borne, but in this case by the regulator, right, that an overly rigid, overly oppressive regulatory system is working some of the ills that we have been discussing, a lack of efficiency. And when we talk about this, in this case, lack of efficiency means money isn't getting where it should be getting, reduced economic activity, reduced investment gains, whatever, competitive harm. So people not being able to compete in the market and customers in that market not enjoying the full benefits of a, as competitive a market as would be potentially available because the regulator's incentives are – and you know, let's talk about the regulator's incentives, right? If something goes bad, the regulator gets yelled at. The regulator doesn't get yelled at for like, oh, we think we're leaving you know a quarter point of GDP growth on the table, SEC. Get your head in the game. And so I, I just – I wonder – I think your point is very well taken about the externality model. I just don't think that the government regulatory system is immune from that either. And there may be a question as to whether whether it's not an either or, whether there is some sort of midpoint that might be viable or whether the costs of the – you know what the costs of the system you're worried about versus the cost of the system we have are, which again is hard. And the other thing that I wanted to flag is – you know, we're, we're debating the expertise of the SEC. And, you know, as I understand, full disclosure, my wife works at the SEC and my old boss works at the SEC. <laughs> right. So, you know. So be careful what you say. <laughs> be careful. I mean, right. you know, all love for the SEC. But uh, my understanding is that it, they're primarily staffed with lawyers, some economists, some accountants. Increasingly economists and accountants, right. but yes. But what seems to be missing that would seem to be relevant here are like investment bankers, right? Because if you're talking about, well, what type of information is necessary for investors and all of that stuff, maybe – as part of the expertise mix, they should have some fo- more folks there who can, you know, or have experience and education on that front. Because as a lawyer myself, we tend to be risk averse. You know, like our, our, by 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 nature, we tend to be risk averse. By training, we tend to be risk averse. And so, you know, if 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 what your your model is is avoid risk at all costs and avoid avoid the risks we can easily identify, like grandma getting defrauded, which is a very real, very important risk. Very hard to avoid, actually. Yeah. But not avoid a loss of economic activity that leads to lower incomes for you know young people broadly for the next twenty years. It's not that that the incentives as they are are wrong per se; they're just incomplete. I want to I want to pivot from that and see if I can take another stab at railroading you guys and ask and answering my uh, question that I had earlier that you've so expertly avoided, uh, which is and I'll, I'll put it a slightly different way. So imagine I get out of here and in comes maybe a regulator, a senator, and a, and a member of Congress. And they, they all walk say, into a bar? They all walk into a bar, <laughs> and they say, you guys are the experts. We're all in agreement. We want a resilient system that's not going to fold at the first sign of economic distress. seems like there's some general agreement about this idea of principles-based regulation, although some disagreement on how you actually implement it and how far you can go with it. But then they ask you, so what can I do now or you know, over the next five, ten years, because we know policy change happens slowly, that will – allow our kids to be just a little bit more confident that our capital markets won't collapse, that there won't be a crisis, that we won't have to go through a sort of new Dodd-Frank process in another five, 10 years for, for capital markets. What would you tell them? 
And I recognize that's a totally unfair question that requires many, many uh, books and, and policy papers. Well, let's stay to the, some of the points that we've been talking about. I think there's lots of room for improvements in many different areas. And in the disclosure area that we've been talking about, I, I think that the right level of reform would be something along the following. I think that we ought to simplify the disclosure system, retreat from some of the specificity, which I, I think could be done fairly easily. By the way, most people don't know this, but the Congress attached an appendix to the Securities Act of 1933, which was the template for disclosure of through the formal system of registered offerings. It's a couple pages long in the in the US code and it's not bad. I encourage people to take a look at it. Regulation SK, which is that longer current mandatory disclosure system that I've talked about, is roughly 175 pages in the code of federal regulations. So I think we can achieve greater simplicity. I would especially tailor disclosure obligations to the size of the issuing company. So smaller set of disclosure obligations for small companies sort of have a middle tier. And for those wedded to our current system, which is quite extensive, you could apply that to the very largest companies listed on exchanges. But I think you could do that and you would necessarily be more reliant on general principles. So then you have to do something about the enforcement system at the SEC, which is what I've spent lots of years thinking about, and there are no easy answers to it. But the goal, if you had greater principles-based disclosure system, would be somehow to educate the enforcement division that we really mean principles-based and that means respecting choices that individual participants in the market have made within boundaries. And the difficulty is always in the application. So that that's one minor set of reforms I think we could think about hard. Yeah, so many of the answers to your question lie outside of the securities regulation area. Surely there's things that the Fed could do and we could do in employment in labor and employment law. But let's stay on, on topic. I'm not in disagreement with Andy. What I would suggest to do is actually fund the, the regulator better so that they actually have the capacity to talk and examine, shall we say, the market players, the intermediaries and so forth more frequently on a more regular basis so that they can have this ongoing conversation rather than have to fix problem after the fact, after they've arose, right? Currently, the SEC um, examines investment advisors that um, the division has shrunk somewhat over the last couple of years as a result of the hiring freeze. People have left the division. Some people have been redeployed in other parts. So as hard as they tried, they can examine only about 15% of investment advisors per year. They have a an algorithm that tells them which are likely to be more high risk and, and less high risk. But the, the truth still is they can only talk to so many, they can only examine, examine so many. So to the extent we want to prevent crises, we want stable markets, perhaps what we want to do is facilitate this sort of ongoing conversation for the SEC staff with the regulated entities rather than having to rely on enforcement to a great degree. And I think there you do actually need to put more money, give more, put, put more money to, in that place. 
So another persistent question that we need to think hard about is the balance between prudential regulation, which the banking regulators insist they apply. Probably banks disagree, but <laughs> yeah. um, versus a much yeah. more adversarial system. So even in the examination function at the SEC, it is viewed very antagonistically and as a belligerent uh, effort from the SEC. Well, I feel like those responses have almost queued up. I, I almost feel obligated. I got to bring you guys back on in the future just to talk about securities enforcement. That can be an entirely different episode because unfortunately, uh, time does fly when you're talking about securities law and we are just about out of time. Um, I do want to give our listeners a chance uh, since we clearly did not get to everything within the capital market space today, uh, just an opportunity to follow up. If you guys have any recent work you've done or any kind of websites, Twitter accounts like that that you'd like to share, uh, this is a great opportunity to kind of promote promote your work and, and let our listeners know about it. Uh, like all faculty at EDUS Law Schools, I have a faculty webpage where it lists my phone number, it lists my email. That's probably that's the best way to, to contact me at Georgetown. I've been working on securities enforcement for years now. I have a paper coming up on the impact of the Supreme Court's decision in Kokesh that limited capped disgorgement uh, to five years before the SEC filed suit. I have that coming out soon. So you know, keep uh, come back to my page in a few days and hopefully it'll be posted by then. It's a similar for me. I have, you know, so there's a faculty list at the University of Virginia Law School. And also you can look, I try to post things on my page. I guess it's called a page at the SSRN, Social Science Research Network. So those are the – and I'm sure Erska has That's a that great too. resource for all sorts of academic work in this space, f- finance and capital markets. Mercatus.org slash Brian, I think, dash Knight. Or, you know, you can go to the Scholar page and you can find my stuff as well as my contact information. Sounds good. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or email me at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu with any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Thanks to our guests for joining us and providing their expertise. Brian, thanks for your excellent co-hosting services for One Last Ride. It was a pleasure. An honor serving with you, sir. (laughs) Stick around for What's on Tap coming up in just a few minutes. And until then, we'll see you next time. Here for our What's on Tap segment today, I'm joined by co-host Kate Delanoy, and we are sampling Founders Brewing's highly acclaimed, as it says on the bottle and as any craft beer fan will tell you, KBS. That's the Kentucky Breakfast Stout. There's a a brief story behind why we're drinking this one today, uh, but I'll save that for the end. In the meantime, I'll go ahead and get pouring. Why don't you let us know what's going on at Mercatus, Kate? Since we last chatted, we've released four of the regulatory state snapshots. So we put them out for South Carolina, Louisiana, Kansas, and Oklahoma. So that's not the final four that everyone else is talking about, but it's the final four that we're talking about. Yes, but also not the final ones, just the most recent. Sounds good. More to come. Yes. Then we've also put out a brand new policy brief this week on attracting global talent to ensure America is First in Innovation, and that's by Dan Griswold and Jack Salmon, and it's talking about the need for more H-1B visas. And the co-author, Jack Salmon, that you mentioned, we've actually got him over at The Bridge uh, doing an interview. So I had a chance to sit down with Jack, ask him a couple of questions, not only about the paper, but turns out he's actually an H-1B visa holder. So we kind of talked about the paper and the findings, but also about his experience going going through the program. So anyone who's interested in learning kind of first-person perspective should check out that interview. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to give that a read. And then next Tuesday, April 9th, is the release of Tyler Cowen's next book. It's called Big Business. And it's really looking at everything that the businesses have given to us. You know, it's really popular to kind of hate on businesses and complain about all the bad, evil thing corporations are doing. But Tyler really looks at it and looks at all the innovations and great things that really improve our quality of life that we wouldn't have if business didn't exist. Yeah. In many ways, it sounds like this is kind of a classic Tyler book where he takes something that's a little counterintuitive. You wouldn't jump on board with that typically, um, but lays out a really compelling case for it. Yeah, definitely. And so it'll be on sale next Tuesday, April 9th. And then if you're in the D.C. area, he'll be at Politics and Prose on April 17th. I live nearby. I may stop in. You're more than welcome. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to I'm going to switch gears a little bit and get back to my story because I, uh, I need to express myself. Many of our listeners may remember I've mentioned being a Kentucky native and a University of Kentucky alum. And I made a Final Four reference earlier. So, you know, I've been paying attention to March Madness. We are drinking the Kentucky breakfast stout. In honor of my dearly departed Wildcats, we lost to Auburn, so wish them the the best coming up. Uh, But as I've been telling everybody today, at least Duke lost. So as for the beer, uh, this one is, I mentioned, kind of a classic, uh, well-regarded. What do you think? I love KBS. I actually did a pilgrimage to the Founders Brewery just a few weeks ago, actually, and was there for Founders Day. So I did a KBS vertical trying the 17, 18, 19. So clearly very much enjoy it. I'm going to have to go with 4.5. That's that's totally fair. I think I give this one a 5 out of 5 because it is the KBS. It is sort of best in class in my view. If you like chocolate, if you like coffee, if you like bourbon flavors in your stout, this is the beer for you. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for grabbing it. Cheers. 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 